Hello and thanks for tuning in to my second podcast, Freedom Machines with Freddie Dobbs. Today, I'll give you an overview on where I am at the moment with current bikes and also go through a couple of things in the news at the moment that I think are quite exciting or interesting. So I'm just doing this podcast again from my apartment in southeast London. I've got a coffee next to me. Monica's doing a bit of photo editing. So let's get down to it. Current bikes I've got. Indian motorcycle Scout Bobber. Now, this is an, a bike that evokes a lot of emotion. For example... When I originally sent a picture, or when Monica sent a picture of the Scout Bobber to her mum, her mum usually has almost no interest in the bikes that I have on test. But when the Scout Bobber was sent to her, her reaction was, ooh, now there's a proper bike. And that's, that's what it does to people. I have people stopping me in the streets and saying, oh, I, I didn't know that Indian were making new bikes, or I haven't seen an Indian since... The 1950s, it sparks a conversation anywhere you go. You see people looking at the tank and, and just reading and cycling past saying, oh, it's an Indian. I love that about it. Everywhere you go, you fill up for fuel, you stop on the side of the road. Everywhere you go, people are looking. But I've got the T120, the Triumph Bonneville T120 as well. And it's a tough call between the two. I got the Scout Bobber. I loved it so much. I thought, right, that's it. I found my dream bike. But the T120 comes along. Completely different kind of bike. And I can't call it. But I get the appeal of both the gentleman's bike and the Scout Bobber. The, the thug kind of a bike. I just love them both so much. I still can't decide. They're so different. And actually, I've had... I've actually had fairly even feedback from both about what people like. Uh, I thought... The Scout Bobber got such a brilliant reaction, I thought that's it, there's no way the T120 can match it for a reaction that we've had on social media, but the T120 came along and people absolutely love it. So the jury's out at the moment, but without question, what I've got in the lockup is pretty much my dream garage with those two. They've still got four more days of overlapping, absolutely loving it. And let's get down to the news now. Just a few interesting points. Number one, Montana in the USA. Montana legalizes motorcycle lane filtering. And that's interesting in the context of what's going on because three weeks ago I learned that France have just banned lane splitting. They've banned it. So if you're in France, if you're in Paris, you now can't zip through traffic and dodge the traffic jams exactly the whole point really of a motorbike in a city is that you don't have to queue for traffic if you're a delivery rider if you're an uber rider if you're a same day courier that need to get around and do multiple drops or if you're just getting to work and you only need to take 20 minutes to get to work because you you ride a bike you know you save so much time the congestion in the cities is reduced it's surely a brilliant viable mode of transport but france have banned it and i'd love to hear from any parisians any french people or anyone in general who lives in a country or city where motorcycle filtering and lane splitting is banned because i want to know is it as bad in reality that i've got in my mind i just I just imagine I go into London three to four times. A lot of the times are with Monica. 
and lane splitting. To get into Greenwich from where I live, it's 20 minutes on motorbike, but by car it's 40 minutes because it is absolute hell trying to drive anywhere into London. I'm sure Paris is similar, so please do let me know what it's like. And do you ride into London or do you ride into Paris for work? Do you commute? Are you a proper delivery rider in Paris? I want to know what life's like now because I've had a couple of conversations with French riders who funnily enough were both at these huge protests that I've seen, thousands of French bikers lining the streets and, you know, putting their point of view across that this is ridiculous we can't live like this so please do give me your points of view whether you agree with me or whether actually you see where the french government's coming from i'd love to hear from the, from you oh email me actually a good way dob.bs at outlook.com any thoughts on that send me over an email next point royal enfield himalayan they now climb to euro 5 status so the himalayan will be a euro 5 bike and why is that interesting? Well, for me, it's interesting because I had a Royal Enfield Himalayan on test a few weeks ago, 2019 model, and it still had a manual choke. And I asked the delivery driver who dropped off the bike, why does it have a manual choke? And he said, because in India, they released the bike when it came out in 2018, and it was a carburetted model. So they just left on the manual choke for the European market. And I just couldn't believe it. That is a big improvement. They've gone from being a carburetted bike just three, two years ago, now being Euro 5 compliant. So that's a big step. The engine size is the same. The horsepower is the same. But the fact it's Euro 5, that's a really big step. And for me, I remember when I was testing, testing the Himalayan, and I thought that's the perfect amount of power. I think it's 24 horsepower. But when you're off-roading, it's perfect. I didn't want any more horsepower. You can redline it, you can rag it and manhandle it up the muddy slopes. You never worry about it. You're never going to get yourself into too too many dangerous situations. It's, it's just the perfect amount of power for having fun off-road. If you're like me and I would class myself as a fairly poor off-road rider, I just enjoy having fun in the mud. That bike is just indescribably fun when you leave the main road. But it gets me thinking, with Euro 5 coming around now, what bikes are we going to lose by the wayside? Because there'll be certain bikes and certain manufacturers that just have to drop the dead wood of the old bikes that they think either it's going to be too expensive for us to get this specific engine up to Euro 5 regulations, or simply that we have to cut back on our on our bike lineups, our engine lineups, because it's just so expensive getting everything in line with these new regulations that we have to slim our offerings down completely. Yamaha R6, that's going. But the big one for me that's going, the Harley Davidson Sportster will be discontinued in Europe. They'll carry on selling it in the US, although I'm sure it's only a matter of time before it goes from there. But in Europe, the Sportster's going. It's been in production since 1957, and that's a really big loss. And from what I can find online, the reason for that loss is exactly down to these new Euro 5 emission standards. So it's directly responsible for us losing the Sportster. Triumph lineup. They've got 
think it's at least four bikes that are now these new 2021 models. And of course, all of them. I think you've got the Street Twin, the T120, the T100, the Speedmaster. There may be one I've missed, but they're now all 2021 updated models and they're all Euro 5 and I've had a look at the specs. And from what I can see, there's nothing really to get excited about apart from the fact if that type of thing excites you, they will all now be Euro 5 compliant. But how important is it? This Euro 5, how much of a difference does it in reality make? So I thought I'd do a little bit of Googling to find out what's the difference between Euro 1, the first ever motorcycle emissions regulations. What's the real difference between Euro 1 to where we are right now, Euro 5? How far have we moved on? And my mind was absolutely blown because Euro 1, CO2, CO2 grams per kilometre, Euro 1, it was a benchmark or a limit that you had to have on motorbikes of 13 grams per kilometre of CO2. 13 grams Euro 5, one gram. And I'll do one more interesting stat. Hydrocarbons, grams per kilometre. Euro 1, the limit was three grams per kilometre of hydrocarbons. Euro 5, 0.1. That's how much this has come on. It, when you look at the stats and you realise how much cleaner the streets and the cities will be because of these Euro regulations. It does make sense. I'm just looking at it as we speak. I won't bore you with any more figures, but wow, the difference is is huge and I'm all in for it. So it's, it's going to happen more and more until we eventually get to electric bikes. So bring it on. And that brings me nicely to electric bike sales because the sales growth of electric bikes is up in the UK 45%. And the reason that's so interesting is because we're in lockdown and in the UK for huge chunks of this year, all of the bike dealerships have been closed. So you can't even go to a dealership and buy a bike, test a bike, look at a bike. They've all been closed, yet electric bike sales are up 45.7%. And in Europe, in 2011, electric bike sales were 1,000 units a year. In 2020, it's now 21,000 electric bikes a year are being sold. And while that's still a small percentage, you can see the way it's going. And I think within the next five to 10 years or so, this is gonna be very different in the motorcycle industry. And I've got something very exciting because I hope if all goes well, things often change, things often fall through, but if all goes well, early April, I really hope to have my first electric motorbike on test. And I think I can say it, I think it's fine. Harley Davidson Livewire, if I'm lucky, I should get that early April, so long as their fleet's in place and everything, and I'm going to do my absolute best to, to just see what it's like really with an electric motorbike in the UK. You know, we're rolling out all of this charging network, but the reality is we're still a million miles away from being from the majority of people being able to ride electric bikes because we just don't have anywhere near enough charging points. But 
What's it going to be like for me in southeast London, riding and running this live wire? I know opposite me, I'm just looking at it now through the balcony. I've got two charging points at the pub opposite me. Starbucks, which is 50 meters to my left, that has two to three electric charging points. So exactly where I am now, even though I live in a flat, we've got the charging points that should, in theory, make it possible. Although I don't know if I'm going to have to carry around a whole load of wiring in my backpack to charge it, because I want to do one day and see if I can get, in reality, over to Ipswich, for example, which is where Monica has a flat. I want to see if I can get to Ipswich, which is 75 miles away, with no charging points that I've seen around Monica's flat. Get there, which is 75 miles away, enjoy a bit of riding around Ipswich, and come back, which is another 75 miles. Is it possible to do a, a fairly normal trip that I often do in a day and do it with the live wire? I cannot wait to find out how that is. And sales, nextly, sales of scooters. Something that actually, funnily enough, is more of interest to me than you may think. Sales of scooters in the UK have increased by 6%. And you may say, well, I've got my full biking license. Why would I be interested in the sales of scooters? But these are brilliant forms of transport. They're actually more fun than you think. If you passed your test, your biking test, and you went straight onto a big bike and you never experienced the fun of riding a scooter, there's a time and a place for it 100%. I was downstairs yesterday getting the, what did I have yesterday? The T120 out of the lockup. And I bumped into my neighbor and he was downstairs with his bike. And a month ago, his Yamaha XSR 900 was stolen. And this happens all the time in Southeast London. If you live in this area, you accept that there's going to be gigantic bike crime. And if you have a bike, you've got to lock it up with at least three locks. And even then, there's absolutely no guarantee that it's not going to be stolen. It really is that bad here. So his bike got stolen a month ago. He spent a lot of time trying to find it. He even put out a reward of 500 pounds for anyone that can give him any information to try and find his bike. And he tracked down his bike. He tracked it down to a specific person and a specific house where his bike was. So in his mind, he'd completely figured out exactly where his bike was. However, he went to the police and the police said, that there's no concrete evidence proving it's there, so they won't intervene. So he's in a situation where, in his mind, he's figured out where his bike is, but he can't do anything about it. He's not allowed to go and knock on the door and confront them. The police won't jump in because apparently there's no hard evidence. So he finally had to admit defeat and get an insurance payout. And the insurance premiums are going to go up. It's a huge amount of hassle and stress. And I saw him downstairs and he's just bought another bike, but it's not a motorbike. It's a maxi scooter. I don't know how to pronounce it, but it's a KYM. I think it's Taiwanese, Kaim, KYM, 125cc, big plastic maxi scooter. And he said he's just had enough of it. In this area that we live, in southeast London, with the bike crime and stressing out every day that maybe my pride and joy bike will be stolen. So he's bought a thousand pound maxi scooter and he said it's absolutely brilliant. Just commuting, it's fun, it's comfortable, it's got a heater, it's got storage below the seat for two helmets. 
all day long comfort. I mean, I've ridden these maxi scooters with Monica and Tenerife and I can vouch for it. They are incredibly comfy and actually more fun than you'd ever imagine they should be. They are absolutely brilliant modes of transport. So these sales figures now of 6% rise in scooter sales of course, a huge amount of that now is because of the coronavirus and people trying to figure out the best way to commute and not have to be on trains. But it just makes sense on so many levels, not having to ride your pride and joy to your office and leave it outside and socially distancing. You don't need to get on any public transport. It's a fantastic way to travel. And the final story that I found interesting, it's not a biking related story, but it is something that I find relevant for biking adventures. And that is Thailand tourism. They started in the UK massively pushing out tourism advertising because they're about to open back up. I think, I think it's June or so. So every day I see about three adverts on YouTube advertising the fact that Thailand's an incredible tourism destination and looks like they're almost ready to get back into business for tourists. And if you've never, if you've never considered Southeast Asia as a great biking trip, whether it be one or two weeks or two to three months, I highly recommend it because this is a completely different type of biking adventure than, than you may well be used to. 125cc scooters rule over in Southeast Asia. It doesn't matter if you're a 10-year-old or an 80-year-old or a, a father carrying your four children on the back. Everything runs around 125cc Honda scooters and mopeds. So Monica and I, if we ever can, we try and get away from the English winter. We've been in Tenerife for seven months. We've done Thailand and Bali and Australia for a month. But one of our favorites that we've done twice now is Bali. And we try and go to Southeast Asia and Bali for two to three months in the winter. And when we do, we get the long flight over to Bali. We land, we go over to our apartment, we drop the bags off. As soon as we drop the bags off, the first thing I do is I go down to the local moped rental company and I get a moped long term, whether it be two to three months three pounds a day to rent a moped or 55 to 60 pounds for the whole month to rent this little honda 125cc bike and there is no better way to explore thailand bali and the indonesian islands than these mopeds they are fantastic the food in bali three to four pounds for a meal the accommodation three to four hundred pounds for a month everything's so cheap so Imagine it, you're on this beautiful island with great weather, really warm, shorts, t-shirts and flip-flops every day because it's 30 to 32 degrees. The food's so cheap that you wake up in the morning, jump onto the scooter and then you ride to the coast and you have a morning coffee or morning breakfast overlooking the sea. You then ride around exploring the island. You never have to worry about going back for lunch in your hotel because it's so cheap eating out everywhere. You just ride wherever you want, stop off wherever's convenient for you to eat. It is fantastic. And from there, weekends are three to four days away. Monarch and I, a couple of times, we rode from the touristy area in Bali 
all the way across Bali up to the north coast where we caught a ferry. So we rode over on our little 125cc scooter, parked up at the port, left the moped there. You don't worry about any locks or anything because in our experience, there's absolutely no bike crime at all. So you leave your scooter there, you jump onto this passenger ferry, takes two to three hours or so, and you're in this stunning tropical island that looks like it's from a pirate film or pirate scene from 150 years ago. The, the ferry docks in that takes about 80 people or so. You jump off and you're met with a local who just holds a set of keys in front of you and you ask him how much it is and he said it's three, four pounds a day. So you say, great, I'll take it for four days. And you take this this 125cc Honda that hasn't been serviced in about 10 years and you give him your 12 pounds and you say, is there any paperwork? Where shall I leave the bike? And you say, nope, no paperwork, no helmet. He said, leave the bike there just where you found it with the keys in in three days time and that's it, but nothing at all. So you've got no protection. You've got a bike that's somehow working although it just blows my mind sometimes how these little hundas keep going with the lack of maintenance they've got and you've got an entire island to just go and explore the little the little deserted beaches in the middle of nowhere the forests see the local towns just it's a fantastic way to explore and if you've ever got a few weeks or a few months and you want something completely different from the normal tour where you have your big motorbike and your panniers, I highly recommend Southeast Asia. It is absolutely fantastic. All you can afford to take because they're small bikes and all you wear is shorts and swimming trunks and a vest. You just pack up a little backpack, few pounds every day for a moped and you're, the world's your oyster out there. And when you're in Bali, 95% of people, maybe even 99, are on 125cc Honda mopeds. But every so often, you'll see some really cool guys or girls, and they'll be on these 250cc custom bikes because there's a big custom bike scene out in Indonesia. And we're not talking... 900 cc customs it's all about the 125 cc's the 250s and things like that because the roads are congested they're tiny it's just not the place to own a harley or a big cc bike so these custom bike shops popping up everywhere brilliant looking things so we decided to go to a place called changu on the coast it's a really cool hippie australian vibe kind of area in Bali and there's a great place called Malamadre which which modify and make these custom bikes so we decided to go there and rent out one of these bikes for three days so we picked the one we wanted said that we'll be back in three days and we picked it up on Friday so we rode our little moped over to Malamadre left the moped with them picked up this cool custom bike 250cc I think I think it was a Yamaha 250cc Yamaha it's got a two it's a two-seater but it's quite small and it's definitely not set up for two but we thought no this is brilliant took it rode for two minutes down to the coast and we went to Deus Deus Ex Machina and that's where was it Deus yeah yeah it was just asking Monica to confirm it was it was Deus right on the coast and this is 
one of the coolest spots in Bali. It's a surf shop, it's a custom bike shop, they do delicious food. Pulled up with the Malamadre bike there, had breakfast, and then we're about to set off for a three-day trip into the center of Bali, which is pretty much thick jungle and vegetation. And we were aiming for a place called Abud. So we set off thinking, my God, this is perfect. We're on the perfect bike for this trip with two people. Set off and after 30 minutes, Monica was in floods of tears because this bike is not designed for two people. You can be- You were too. Yeah, Monica's confirming. I was also close to floods of tears as well because having a second person on the back of one of these custom bikes it's fine for 10 to 15 minutes, but they are not set up at all for long rides with two people. And it brings me back to this point. Scooters, there's a time and a place for it. There's nothing I would have rathered doing these big trips on exploring Southeast Asia than being on a little 125cc moped. You, you can dart in and out of traffic. They're light, they're brilliant on fuel. You could put a Harley Davidson and a 125cc scooter in front of me in Southeast Asia and I'll take the 125cc scooter every single day. And that wraps up what I think is, in my mind, a little bit of interesting news. And I'll move on to the final point or the final part, which is questions. I've had quite a few questions in and thank you so much for sending them. So I'm going to try and block these questions into four key questions that hopefully hit every single point for anything that you've asked in the past week or so. So here we go. First one, is the Triumph Street Twin fast enough? Yes, absolutely, there's no question in my mind. In my mind, I have a cutoff point for motorbikes where anything above this horsepower will keep up with anything on real roads. And that point is 65 horsepower. Any motorbike, 65 horsepower or above, will in real, on real roads keep up with absolutely everything. You're not going to be left behind by anything. And an example bike of that 65 horsepower is the Street Twin, funnily enough, that comes in at that. And I'll give you an example of a bike that I've had that is just below that threshold. And that's the Royal Enfield Interceptor and Continental. Now, while the Interceptor is one of my favorite ever bikes, it's 45 horsepower. And that 45 horsepower means that you will get left behind sometimes. It's just a little bit too slow to keep up with everything. I remember in the summer, I was out on the Continental GT, 45 horsepower, Royal Enfield Continental. And I was out with a friend of mine who's got a Kawasaki Z900. And we were on a spirited ride on the country lanes and we're coming out of a roundabout and he just absolutely left me. It's coming out of the bends. I was left in his dust and he was on the horizon before I'd even come out of the roundabout. It was that big a difference. So even though, especially the Interceptor, it's one of my favorite ever bikes, I'd definitely buy one. It, it's undeniable that on the real roads, it is still significantly slower than these more powerful bikes. So the cutoff 65 horsepower, to answer your question, is the Street Twin fast enough? Yes, definitely. Next question, BMW R9T, can you try one? I can, and I'm, I'm sure it's fine for me to say. 
I hope to get one within about a month or so, and it will be the first BMW that I've ever ridden. Now, things sometimes fall through with these press bikes, but hopefully if all goes well, I should have one within two to three weeks, and I can't wait to see how it compares to the T120, and I'll be as impartial as I possibly can. Although, I was looking at a few of the specs, and I think, I think the BMW R9T starts, starts at 15K, and that's a big increase over the T120, which is 10,800. So I can't wait to see what the differences are with those two bikes, but very, very excited to try my first ever BMW. 5K budget, what do you buy? Do you know what, I was originally going to, I was originally going to say my model Bonneville or the Interceptor, and I would, recommend either of those two but I wanted to have a look online and just see what else there is to try and be as impartial as possible and not just say Bonneville or Royal Enfield because I test those a lot. The Street Twin, Triumph Street Twin, that's close to 5k, that's great as well but I'm going to throw a slight curveball in here actually and say a bike that I've never ridden but they look really good. They're Japanese, they'll be well built, they'll be reliable, they're stripped back, they're cool, they're modern classic style, and that is the Yamaha XSR 700. You can get one of those in the UK for about 4,300. They look brilliant, and they're really, really cool bikes. So that's got to be a great contender for a 5K bike. In fact, I even saw one today on Auto Trader, if you're in the UK and you're in the market for a bike, have a look. Right now on Auto Trader, there's a Yamaha XSR 900 for I think 4,800 pounds. It's got 45,000 miles on it, but don't worry about that. People get too scared about high bike mileage. They can do 100,000 miles, a big 900cc engine like that. That will do 100,000 miles, no issue at all. So 45,000 miles for that, it's got to be a brilliant brilliant bargain and the final question this is something i had to properly google i've had quite a few questions about riding and parking in london and someone asked me this question just before i started record recording this podcast so i thought right let's do it let's just try and do a bit of research and answer the question and that is let's have a read of it here okay parking parking in london how do you how do you dissect parking in London? What's legal? What's not legal? And I've done some research here. Here we go. There are 32 London boroughs and each borough has their own parking rules ranging from bike friendly to non-bike friendly. The bike friendly areas such as Dagenham, that actually allows parking in car parks and parking bays so you can park in normal paid parking bays and paid car parks but you don't have to pay so you can park where you want to but if you go to Westminster for example even motorcycle parking bays aren't free you have to pay I think last time I checked it was a pound a day to park your motorcycle in parking bays in Westminster so every single London borough is slightly different there's one general rule one rule across the whole of London that's universal, and that is that pavement parking isn't allowed anywhere. And that surprised me, because up until, well, when I read the article, 
I always thought I was being extremely clever, just parking the bike on the pavement and thinking that I won't get a fine. So I've always parked my bike on the pavement or just squeezed it in between two cars on the road in a, in a, a paid bay, but I never, I never pay. I just squeeze in between two cars or I pull it onto the pavement and think I'm being extremely clever and no one's going to find me. I've never been fined in 10 years, but I think that's just through pure luck because it looks like what I've been doing hasn't technically been legal so you have to check with each bar but what I would say we usually I go into London a lot three times a week or so and I'm usually with Monica on the back and we usually don't have too many problems London's okay for motorcycle parking bays if you get somewhere that you're riding to in London and there are no parking bays my tip is just ride around the corner there's usually a parking bay for motorcycles within one to 200 meters. I hope that that helps. Actually, that's been as enlightening for me as I hope maybe it's been for you, but good luck with it. It's not too bad in London for these parking bays and even Westminster, the most expensive. Last time I checked, I may be corrected on this, but it was about a pound a day, so it's not the end of the world. And that's it. That's it for this week's podcast. Thank you so much for listening. If you have any questions at all, send me over an email dob.bs at outlook.com please do follow me on instagram dob.bs and have a brilliant evening thank you and goodbye